for the people some great time off great time relaxing with my family but feels good to be back too you've already been back for freight waves now i was back yesterday but hey good wednesday afternoon everybody here in Freight alley what's going on my friend what you got on you your know, mind today holiday man? weekend scams go up did you know that scams go up car oh, they do. related scams because everybody knows they're at home and stuff right yeah and people are going to be in the wrong areas they might not challenge court mm, cases because they're traveling and all these things gotcha. all those things well yeah friday september september the third slide up police took a look at this video right here take a look so someone tried to scam this tesla driver you're going to see this man Walk on the screen here, right? This guy in the orange, uh, he took a flop with his flip-flops on. And I also think that he should be brought up on felony charges for the socks with the flip-flops. But that's that's a whole different story here. At least a misdemeanor there. There's a, so this guy's filling up his Tesla. I get Why would he be filling up his Tesla? He can't be filling it up. It's a Tesla. He must be just getting, like, something from inside the store, right? Yeah, I don't think he's at a... Uh, that looks like those are the pumps over there behind him. Okay, so he's just getting something at the store, right? This gentleman walks behind his, uh, his car. Calling him a gentleman might be dubious. He flops to the ground. <laughs> And uh, he tries to make it seem like it's a big accident here. You know, the, the driver gets out. He called it out immediately. He even knocked the guy's flip-flop yeah. away. He almost yeah, tried, I thought I he was going to take that flip-flop off and beat him with it. But uh, what happened is, I don't believe, right? They got the call about this thing. The man, he was a uh, 47-year-old, right? 47-year-old Arthur Bates Jr. He calls the police, and guess what happens? Um, they arrested him. They arrested him. Uh, yeah. Justice prevailed. Yeah, they did arrest him. Well, the Tesla records everything, apparently. It does. Well, so the Tesla, you got yeah. side cameras, you got you got the front camera, you got the back camera. And it's one of those things, like, with uh, with dash cams. And I remember when dash cam video was big, you'd see, like, all these, like, crazy videos from Russia yeah. of accidents. Yeah. But we've seen so many owner carrier owner-operators and truckers themselves who've been in accidents and been like, man, this camera sure was a lifesaver. Sure. Same here with the Tesla. Yeah, Absolutely. I, most <laughs> I love the guy who comes out there and just slaps his foot up there. Get off of my He's like, get it. What the heck's yeah, that? I'm trying to pull those scams on a Tesla. What's <laughs> no, this? Cyber? Where's my Cybertruck? All right, let's tip the band. Truck? Speaking of autonomous trucks, autonomous trucks are coming with a huge potential windfall if you're ready to seize it. Start re-engineering your supply chain for autonomy today. Contact Locomation for at... Hey, <laughs> go to locomation.ai for turnkey solutions immediately after this show. Yeah, we're going to get into a lot of awesome stuff today. We're going to be yeah. talking about these, these great autonomous subs that are a big boon for the wind Very industry, cool maybe even stuff. ports doing surveys. We'll find out all about them from Bedrock. We're going to be talking about, uh, you know, Final Mile, the prominence of Final Mile. We have an yeah. awesome guest for that. And we're going to talk about the story behind Leaf Logistics, the vision and the passion that brings it together. We have their founder on the show today, amongst other things, starting with the headlines. Let's get to it. With the headlines, let's get to it. Yeah, there we go. All right, transportation capacity dips further, prices keep surging. I'm not a broken record, but this market sure is. <laughs> Todd Maiden reports logistics managers indexes out. Transportation capacity remains on a downward trajectory where prices and utilization are, and I quote, increasing at an increasing rate. I guess what? that's why it's not called the English Majors Index, um, according to that supply chain survey released on Tuesday. <laughs> I love that, increasing and increasing. The LMI capacity index has contracted for 15 consecutive months, the data is similar to FreightWave's outbound tender reject index, which shows truckload carriers started to reject loads under contract at a higher clip starting around the same time. The report goes on to explain itself. It says the LMI is a change index, not a measure of absolute growth. So the fact that the logistics industry still displayed the high rate of growth after expanding so rapidly in the two previous months speaks to the unprecedented stretch of growth we are currently observing. And this looked at all sorts of things. I mean, this looked at transportation, warehousing, all that stuff. It said we have never before observed an extended streak of growth in the LMI. It will be interesting to see how much longer supply chains can take this type of pressure, yeah. especially given given that peak season is just beginning. We're starting to see some of that pressure now, especially when we talk about ports a little bit later on in the show. Sure. Um, but that's a good question, so let me ask you that. How long can supply chains take this kind of pressure? I just We just got some, like, we got some rights into our general media mailbox yesterday. I put them on Twitter, and it was something like $24,500 spot rates from uh, Shanghai to Yeah, it's crazy, right? It's just wild. Yeah, it's absolutely wild. I mean, I, I, I guess that I can answer that with, you know, how long until what? Yeah, I mean, what what is broken, right? Is it is it 
44 ships in, in port right now. Is it rates 24,000? What happens? What is it? I guess a, a, a better question that I would ask is, is really how long until the consumer habits and priorities adjust and it changes because of this stuff? We stop buying goods or it starts slowing down the economy because of these issues. And how long can some of these smaller businesses weather these storms? Yeah. And anybody who's importing stuff that doesn't have a ton of margin room in those containers. You know, we right. had that one guest on from uh, from Viamart, right? From Viamart, that, that they uh, they make stuffed animals. They, they're very dense. They take up a ton of yeah. space, not a ton of margin for this. So their containers are way more costly than someone who's sitting sending something less dense that has more margin room for it for these massive compressions and expansions. Yeah, these these so-called or whatever you want, cheaper items, whatever, they can't afford to even be shipped, right? So they're going out of there. And this is a boon for the big guys who can weather these type of storms. Yeah, right? we've been talking about that, that competitive advantage. Yeah. advantage Vantage. And Lars Jensen's really the first one who really broached that topic maybe about a month and a half ago. And uh, it was such a good point. We've been harping on and looking into it ever since yeah. and, and talking to our guests about it. And um, it, it makes so much sense. Just sad for the small businesses. Uh, White House wants billions for vaccine and PPE supply chains. They don't want March of 2020 to be repeated. Matt Bloys, our own reporter, he says a White House plan to counter future pandemics includes billions of dollars for efforts to speed up production and distribution of new vaccines, diagnostic tests and personal protective equipment. The $65 billion plan released last Friday also requests funding for surveillance of new pathogens, research into future therapeutics and expanding the public health workforce, getting some more nurses and stuff. And there's things, so many shortages, especially in places like um, Idaho right now, where they yeah. have less than 40 percent vaccination rate, by the way people. Come on. In addition, the White House promised $3 billion to speed up production of existing COVID-19 vaccines. Yeah, in the short term, on Thursday, Jeff Zients, the White House COVID-19 response coordinator, said the federal government would invest about $3 million or $3 billion, sorry, to expand U.S. manufacturing vaccine uh, inputs. And this funding, which will start going out on the coming weeks, will enable companies with manufacturing produce vaccines inputs to add new production lines and facilities and to also expand Bill finish capacity, Zeitz said during a press briefing. So, yeah, good news there. Get the capacity, get it out faster. But we got to get people to take this stuff, too. Sure, right? yeah. <laughs> and we got to protect the people who are dealing with the people who are and aren't taking yeah. it within our healthcare system. The plan calls for $3 billion investment in improving access to PPE. That means developing solutions to increase more effective or reusable products and increasing surge production capacity. Because a little secret here, one thing nobody's really talking about that is obviously going to be a huge issue is all these discarded masks. Sustainability is such a huge thing oh, yeah. after this pandemic. And now we got, you know, we got propofol gloves, we got masks, we got syringes, we got all sorts of junk just putting back into that has to be disposed of. And um, that's not cool. Um, yeah, it's not. But what are you going to do? The White House wants to invest $2.1 billion in replenishing pandemic stockpiles and building more resilient supply chains for critical medical products. So all seem like a good idea. Good to hear that. Um, here was a terrible story that came out last week. And its oh, authorities man. have figured out what killed two tanker cleaners at a truck wash. So here's what happened. On August 29th, right, and a trucker, he pulled into Denny's truck wash in yeah. Avondale. Um, he gets out, you know, he needs the, the front of the truck washed. And the two workers there were told to also clean the inside of the tanker. Yeah, what, yeah, but that's when the first man entered the tank and fell unconscious, dude. Yeah, and then so the one second, guy goes in first. And one he guy falls goes on, in and immediately falls down unconscious. Yeah, second guy goes in to help him. Boom, he's down as well. That so now they're both stuck in there. Nobody knows it. Yeah, I, you know, there's not a lot of details here on if they were wearing protective covering, if they had done all the things necessary yeah. to do this safely. But what we do know is the tanker had a residual chemical substance known as sodium hydrosulfide inside, which can be very lethal in high doses. It's a chemical used in the leather industry, forget this, to remove hair from hide. So yeah, that that's can't definitely not going to do wonders for your skin in there. <laughs> or your lungs. Yeah. Unfortunately, both men were pronounced dead at the, at the scene. They were dead to rights the second they got inside tanker. Their names have not been released. Police said fire crews, you know, they put on their PPE, they extracted the two men yeah. out of the vaults, and um, the four firefighters, even that they got in there, they suffered heat-related injuries and were transported to hospitals. So that's probably chemical burns that they got I would think, yeah. in there. I did ask a few tanker drivers how this procedure usually works, so I know a few, and um, one of American trucker Taylor built, he's played it forward for us before, he said, sad, truck washes and tank washes usually are two different places. Tank washes are equipped with ladders and nitrogen sensors. They never get inside the tank without proper gear. Uh, truck washes, on the other hand, are not equipped and sad. I'm not sure if this is the exact case for this place, if they were certified for that. He yeah, said, when we unload hazmat, we use nitrogen to air it off. There is zero oxygen inside the tank, not to mention the smell of the product. Uh, you'll drop in seconds if you enter that environment, yeah. as these guys did. The tank washers rarely go inside his tank unless it's a scrape job or a thick, nasty product. So this is definitely not something to take lightly. 
No, it certainly isn't something to take lightly. It really it begs the question, is how did this happen? Are these... If the, why did they go in this? Place? I don't know. You still, I still need more details. It's there. Very the I mean, missing uh, a lot. Of from it. the sound of the story, it sounds like they jumped in, like as they're outside cleaning, and they took the, the same measure of precaution, which is not much, and jumped inside. And unfortunately, that's what happened. They could have been newer workers, maybe inexperienced. We don't know. We yeah, don't they know certainly, they certainly didn't know what they were getting into. That is for sure. And but it per, remains to be seen whether they're certified. If you're listening to this going forward, I mean, as a driver, just be responsible. I'm not blaming the driver here, but be responsible. No. Someone's entering your tanker. Obviously, stop them because their supervisor may not. You might save a life. Um, now let's go to our guest here. You know, Final Mile is such a, such a huge thing. We're even seeing van lines, moving lines, all those kind of things get into it. We have Megan Muir on. She's the Executive Vice President of Sales at Unigroup. She's a Stevens College Star alumnus. And you know what? She got her start way back in the day at Walt Disney Animation Studios. Oh, no and she was almost up here with us in media as a Fox News intern. But since then, she's been with Schneider, LTI, and is now with Unigroup. Megan, let us ask you, what is better, the wonderful world of Walt Disney or the magical world of freight? Trucking, always trucking. <laughs> trucking is always better. Well, as, you know, as many people already know, but some may not, not only is Unigroup the parent company of United Van Lines and Mayflower Moving, but the company also has a rapidly expanding um, logistics division, including nationwide file mile, mile services, hot, hot market. Why did you get involved? Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, the final mile segment has been one that it's just taken off rapidly, right? So as uh, as the economy and the pandemic hit, uh, certainly we've seen e-commerce just spike, right? So uh, about four years ago now, our CEO, Mark Rogers, came on board and uh, was really interested in expanding and diversifying our revenue streams. And the final mile segment made a lot of sense. And uh, still does because our network is already positioned uh, coast to coast with about 500 trucking companies. So uh, unlike our competitors, I think that's always one of the struggles is how do we get the footprint in place to really grow and expand our final mile sector? And uh, for Unigroup, we were already uniquely positioned where we had the network in place. So uh, it's been a new line of business for us and a new revenue stream uh, for a few years now and, and one that uh, we think is going to continue to grow for years to come. Yeah, I was going to say, Megan, this isn't a brand new thing for 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 Unigroup to be doing this. What are the services that you guys are 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 offering there, and uh, what should people be looking for in a, in a final mile provider? Yeah, so um, again, we have 500 trucking companies coast to coast and about 6,000 trucks. And our legacy, our core business is household goods moving. So uh, we're already very familiar with being inside the customer's home, having our drivers inside of uh, our customer's homes and doing uh, installation services as well. So the final mile sector, uh, as you think about uh, certainly the e-commerce space and, and growing with uh, large retailers, that's been a, a hot market and a hot space for us for a few years. And I think what's most important in a final mile provider is certainly partnering with someone who you're comfortable with will be a true extension of your brand uh, and also carry through your, your customer experience because a lot of retailers that we talk to will tell us, you know, a lot of our sales are online now and we don't even have as many brick and mortar stores as we used to a year or two ago. Uh, so you, the trucking company, you are really our, our sometimes our only face-to-face -face interaction with the end user. So I think that's most important is to make sure that you're comfortable with the trucking company truly being an extension of your brand uh, and, and certainly carrying through the customer experience that, that your clientele has come to expect. Um, but I would just add that solution design is also uh, another really important concept in selecting the right final mile provider. So uh, oftentimes you'll hear trucking companies say, here's the box of things that I do. And does that work with you, Mr. Customer? Uh, Unigroup is a little bit different where we actually have a core team uh, based out of Fenton, Missouri at our corporate office. It's a control center, and that team does everything from sales to operations, but also solution design. So oftentimes we take and tailor the unique needs of our customers to fit our final mile uh, solution design and, and related needs, right? So it might be everything from the type of uniform that they wear uh, to following specific process and protocol uh, for, for a specific client. Yeah, I mean, that's such a great point too. Like 
I got a house this year, so we've had all yeah. sorts of products arriving from right. couches to tables to small products to all sorts of things. And one thing I've noticed is some brands get well is what she mentioned here that we're not buying a lot of things in the retail storefront anymore. But you got to take the same care you would with your retail storefront with this final mile delivery. That is like your CSR. It's like customer service rep, that yeah. final point of delivery. And that comes down to service, packaging, and also that respondability of your final mile provider when, when issues arise, right? I mean, it's a congested supply chain. Um, interesting market, though, because so many new players are entering it, Megan. What is the future of Final Mile? Yeah, we think that it's incredibly strong. So as e-commerce continues to expand, uh, certainly with the, the pandemic, right, your, your home is now your place of refuge. So it's not only serving as your office space uh, for one or two or more members of your family. It might also be where you're educating your children and you're finding time to relax all in the same spot. So we're seeing just um, a ton of growth with exercise equipment and big and bulky items, you know, from rugs to furniture to mattresses. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing the trends of people buying all sorts of goods for their homes right now. And we expect that that's going to continue for quite some time as, uh, you know, companies try to adjust. Uh, but we think that the trend for final mile growth will certainly be strong for years to come. And, uh, I think certainly to add on to what's important to selecting a final mile provider, making sure that you have a scalable network, right? So as the strength of the final mile segment continues to grow and perform, uh, making sure that you're partnering with trucking companies that can service more than one or two locations is incredibly important uh, as, as your customers continue to grow. That's absolutely important. And, and can you dig into a little bit more of the big and bulky? We've talked about this change in the e-commerce and the home delivery to this very, yeah. this vague big and bulky and how difficult that can be, especially when you start going across the threshold and doing these white glove type of things and in installations. Can you dig into that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So as you think about uh, big and bulky in the final mile state space, for us, it's it's everything that's oversized or overdimensional. So I just named a lot of those various products, but um, it's, it's items that wouldn't fit into a traditional courier's distribution network. Uh, those are really the items that we're specializing in, in pickup and delivery of. Wow, excellent. Well, hey, how do people get more information about this and how do they contact and connect with you? I know that there's a ton of people who have been asking us about uh, how they can get some help with, with Final Mile providers. Oh, yeah. And we're like, hey, we just talked to the people. Yeah, absolutely. So if you go to unigroup.com, um, all of our Final Mile information is available on our website and that'll direct directly to our sales team. Well, excellent. excellent hey, Megan, stuff. thank you so much for your time today and, and for some more insight into what's going on in Final Mile. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Take Thanks, care. Megan. Hey, let's take a look at a video from our next guest who's coming up oh, so okay. you can get an idea of how cool this product is and what they're trying to do. Because exploration will once more inspire wonder in a new generation. And because ultimately, if we fail to press forward in the pursuit of discovery, we are seeding our future and we are seeding an essential element of the American character. We will increase Earth-based observation to improve our understanding of our climate and our world. We will set far-reaching milestones and provide the resources to reach those milestones. And step by step, push the boundaries, not only of where we can go, but what we can do. Shipping hard drives. All right. Well, it's Anthony DeMars, the CEO and co-founder of Bedrock Ocean, and he's yeah. making these like torpedoes to go and uh, and check out what's going on. But you know what? He's also a he was a ski racer at Syracuse University. Ah, right. So before we even get into these torpedoes, do you ski, Anthony? I do. I actively do it. Uh, I get out as much as I can. And uh, obviously, COVID made that a little difficult, but. Totally. Are you, are you guys skiers? Are you big? Uh, <laughs> I was big for a, a long, long time. I did. I was actually a ski patrol out in Taos, New Mexico, for a little, for a little, for a little while there as well. You ever get thrown off a mountain no for a day, trying to relive your glory days, coming down the green and just going to a full tuck? It has never. Uh, it, not in the last ten years, but before that, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, I got. Uh, I got the ticket pulled once when I was, I think I was like 14 years old. Uh, yeah. nice. Wow. Well, what's the, like, what's the most uh, extreme like ski slope that you've done so far? I think kicking horse up in Canada was by far one of the gnarliest, just, uh, 
I mean, you, you take the lift up and then you got to boot pack up to the top of these different, you know, mountains that you've seen. They've got these, these just absolutely crazy shoots and we hit it just right where, uh, the free ride world tour, uh, backup slope had just opened up and literally within the hours, you had this whole peak that was just untouched fresh powder, uh, these, you know, hyper steep, really technical, uh, shoots. And it was, uh, it was magical. It was magical. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> what about you guys? What, what? Uh, me, bunny slope. I, you know, oh. I did the golf course in Needham, Massachusetts a couple times on my, uh, nice. on my consumer grade snowboard with, uh, the error, with an Aerosmith sticker yeah. on the front of it. I never, I never got to the big slopes. I, um, I got, I got knocked out in the upper enough. bowl at Alta on uh, fresh powder. Uh, mm. it was, it was great. I answered a question. Where did bought Rocky and Bullwinkle moose? Where, where did they grow? You know, where, what was their town? You know, frostbite falls to get up there to, to lay down the tracks and two feet of fresh powder. And, and, and I, I bought the ranch about halfway down the, the face. Wow. Well, the Kennedys, they've they've had some bad luck on the ski slopes. We know too much about that in Massachusetts. Well, Bedrock Bedrock is rethinking the way the world collects and uses seafloor data to lay the foundation, fully map, image, and classify the secrets of the sea. That sounds really cool, Jacques Cousteau. Tell us what's up over at Bedrock. Yeah, so we uh, the basic supposition was that we saw all of these different survey companies around 2019, and we saw a couple of different hardware robotics plays. But we didn't see anyone that was sort of trying to take the big vertically integrated play. Like we needed, we, we believe that this is something that one is it's just extremely technically difficult to do. Two, operationally quite challenging. Like somehow you needed to get sonars all over the ocean within a reasonable amount of time. Um, and then three, you had a data problem, so it co- collects you know somewhere on the order of magnitude of a terabyte of data uh, every single time a vehicle does a dive. And then you sort of live that 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 process where you have to take that data, process it, clean it, have a geophysical you know scientist look at it, interpret it, and then ultimately end up in the hands of a uh, an engineer who says, "Listen, I'm going to put a a cable or a pipeline or a offshore wind turbine right here in the ocean." That took months. And if you look at sort of what has to happen in the world over the next 20 years. Uh, we need to find a way to accelerate this work dramatically. And so we thought that there needed to be a technology company that was looking at everything at, you know, core fundamentals uh, and said, you know, this is the right way that we could build a scalable ocean mapping company, which ultimately in the early days looks kind of like a marine survey company. We do geophysical surveys and we provide software that helps companies that do geophysical surveys or use geophysical survey data, uh, an easier, simple, more modern way to do it rather than shipping hard drives around, which is how most of this data flows through the ecosystem at the moment. So, Anthony, my, my question to you is, is this, is, is why did you start the company? And you kind of explained two different ways there. So which one was the, was the lead? What is it? Was it the fixing a problem that was there and how it was being done right now or the drive for knowing that we need to understand this in order to become a sustainable society? Yeah, like when were you walking yeah. around and came up with your wire? Like yeah. I'm going to make submarines to go. Uh, uh, yeah. it's, it's not an everyday thought. No, it's it's not. It, you know, I was I was one of those kids that like loves Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. I have always loved the idea of the ocean. I grew up around the ocean. I uh, I did naval architecture for a while. I've thought about this problem for a very long time. It's it sort of seemed like something uh, at a very very high meta level. Uh, it seems a little strange that we don't have a full ocean map yet, and it's 2021. And the same thought, and even in 2015, seems strange. But it wasn't really until, I think, 2017, when I met Charlie, uh, Bedrock's co-founder and CTO, where we sort of sat down and uh, I, I asked him, you know, tell me about a problem you deeply care about. And he starts ranting about... Uh, you know, we need to figure out how to explore the ocean. And I had actually thought about that problem deeply before. And so we had this in-depth sort of, uh, <laughs> I don't want to call it a full just deviation or a, a rabbit hole conversation, but it was, it went really deep. And we started taking a look at like what would be required to do it and what does it start to look like? And we both thought it needed AUVs and not ships. And we thought it, uh, Beyond that, there was this huge software and data problem that no one was sort of touching or tackling. And 
to actually get the entire ocean, you'd have to solve both. Like you can't just have the current systems acquiring data the way that we do it now. And you also can't have the same software suites that we use now that live on desktops that allow no paralyzed workflow, no access to massive cloud compute. Um, and so we we thought the driver really for both of us was that the world likely needs a very deep understanding of our ocean extremely quickly. And the fact that we didn't have that in 2019 when we really started getting going was strange. Even the fact that we don't have that much more of it now in 2021 is even more concerning, especially given what's happening now. So we just, I think both are driven by the the single core mission that the world is likely going to need a really deep understanding of our ocean very, very quickly. And uh, to do that is not an easy lift. And so it really required like a, a, a end-to-end vertically integrated solution to try and do this quickly because time is a factor that matters here. I like your shirt, by the way. I just noticed it. That's pretty cool. You got the, the bedrock swag, and I, I like the styling you went for in that one. If you get an extra one, send it in the mail to me. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I got to say, so you mentioned the driver. How do you find someone small enough to pilot that thing? No, I'm just kidding. But like, how, what, what's the technology? Yeah. How does that move? Is it autonomous? Is it yeah. remote? Yeah, it's, it's, it's both, right? You can remotely operate them, but the majority of the work is autonomous operation. And so you have uh, a mission plan where you sort of give it or a subset of vehicles uh, think of it like a, a giant mission directive. Um, those vehicles operate independently uh, to either achieve said mission or acquire data in a specific way. So sometimes you want certain amounts of overlap on some different types of data. Sometimes you want uh, more granular or higher resolution data. So you have to fly at a certain altitude above the seafloor, which is a difference of us versus a lot of other people is because it's a submarine, you get to dictate how far off the seafloor you are and therefore you get to actually choose what sort of resolution you'd like for your data, as opposed to a ship-based system on the surface where it's just like the depth is the depth and you have this sort of sonar fan. And as the depth gets farther, the resolution gets worse. And um, so that's one of the nice things. And I think, uh, you know, right now we are mainly, thankfully the autonomy problem here is a little easier than the autonomous vehicle space, right? Like you don't have uh, a bicycle is just like running out in front of the vehicle and just, you, you know, you could cause millions of dollars worth of liability damage, loss of life, um, these huge morality problems. Uh, this this is a slow moving vehicle in the ocean, which, yeah, it has currents, but the things that we're trying to watch out for are like fishing nets, right? Uh, so it's a bit of a yeah. different autonomy problem, right? Yeah. You ever run into any problems with uh, somebody walking down the beach going, look at these guys. they got to be up to something nefarious. I mean, there's three guys here about to launch this this torpedo into the ocean. What? what? Yeah, <laughs> most of most Why of are it, you on right? that? Yeah, why so, are you on that? Why are you on that yeah, beach? What are you doing that there? We're what's that mission there? It looks like you're going to take out that people, car carrier in the previous picture. <laughs> yeah, no, people, uh, people definitely have taken photos. But the way we look at it is we try and give advance notice. To the municipalities at a time right like it's the That's goal here idea. is to yeah like the goal is not to just show up somewhere and be like hey here we go um it is very much a we work with the correct municipalities to make sure that we're doing um <laughs> the correct things uh to allow them to be comfortable with the work that we're doing as yeah. opposed to um hey look here's this thing we're chucking into the ocean right uh here we go yeah. um and uh, so there is a right way to do this and a wrong way to do it. We're very much trying to work uh, with people the correct way. Right? Yeah, you and mentioned is- you mentioned depth a few times. My my son, he's he's uh, just about to turn seven. He's obsessed with Megadalons okay. and the and the Mariana Trench and this ocean mapping. And he too can't believe. He's like, "What have you been doing all your life? You you, you know, before I was born, that you guys haven't mapped an ocean yet? Like, I need <laughs> to know if shot. there's Megalons down there. Can this thing like go in the Mariana Trench? And how deep can it go?" This particular vehicle can do 300 meters of depth, which means that we can collect data down to about 350 meters, about 950 feet. Um, So this is great for near shore applications. Uh, It's great for a lot of the commercial work that needs to happen very, very quickly in the offshore wind space. Um, It's great for a lot of the cable laying and pipeline routing work that needs to be done or either decommissioned, um, which is one of the big issues that we're seeing right now in the Gulf of Mexico is how do we figure out which of the pipelines have 
uh, proper integrity and need to be decommissioned quickly. So some of the oil spills that we're seeing, unfortunately, right now, um, you know, trying to get more information about that. But these these vehicles will only do down to 300 meters of depth, uh, and we can do about 90 kilometers from shore with this particular model. I got. Is that is that a is that a question of uh, your ability to run it uh, remotely? Is that why the the depth and the uh, distance? So depth is a function of just the engineering of the vehicle itself. Okay. Like as you go deeper, pressures get like increasingly uh, stronger, right? And so you need yeah. to use certain materials. Um, so you can take this vehicle and and scale it into a. 900, not 1,000 meter version, and then a 6,000 meter version. But that takes a different engineering lift than what this vehicle is currently capable of. Um, and then the range is a function mostly of the battery life of the vehicle itself. So one of the nice things about this and one of the restrictions that we put on ourselves was these things had to be able to be launched from shore. And part of that was we needed to move away from a model where you needed a ship to deploy these. Like a lot of the a lot of the marine robotics world right now, you need like a crane. It needs to live on the back of a large, you know, either a research vessel or like a DP2 uh, sort of ship. And um, we just thought that that fundamentally had to change. Like we were never going to get to a scalable ocean platform if it had to go on the back of like one of these really large ships. And so what you'll notice is like people can pick them up. They can be shipped by air or ground freight or any other method, but it literally fits into two Pelican cases, which allows a totally different operational flexibility of what and where and how quickly we can map certain areas of the ocean. Hey, our, our production nerds, they wanted to know um, how much one of those Pelican cases costs, because we have to get those for our gear, and we know they're not cheap. How much is a custom Pelican case for one of these? It's not even a custom Pelican case. I think, I actually don't know the model offhand, but I think it's like an $800 Pelican case, oh, right? It's like, go, it's, we do... We do like a plucking. We do the pluck and pick uh, foam. It's nothing. It's not even like a you know crazy custom thing. It's like we literally are just buying a, a off the shelf pelican case, um, nice. and that's been actually that's been great. Like we've we've shipped it across country, um, had no damage, and you know fingers crossed, right? Like we we have a lot more testing to do on our end, but um, you know it, it's it's a totally different operational profile than a lot of the other marine robotics plays out there, not to mention just like moving ships around and the logistical challenges of doing that, as Let's well as the crew changes. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. you mentioned the commercial stuff, and uh, I know that you have a wind play here for, for the wind farms and infrastructure, but uh, in terms of supply chain, my curiosity is, is any use or any discussions for having these survey ports for, for dredging, sustainability, how to yes. expand the ports here in America are a mess, bro? Yeah, I mean, the, the long story short is absolutely. Um, we provide... One of the other nice sort of benefits of, of what you see in this particular vehicle and how we designed it is that we're much more comfortable in shallower water situations. And so where you wouldn't take another AUV into less than five meters of water, we'd be much more comfortable doing that in a, in a particular sea state. So yes, port infrastructure, uh, 100% in the realm of what, we're, what we can do. Um, we have dual thrusters to be able to handle some of the large current cases. Um, so these things can actually do challenging, uh, sometimes hard to map areas, um, dredging the support of uh, nautical charts, hydro hydrography in general, um, very much something that we are, are capable of doing and um, are sort of actively looking for customers right now to be able to work with. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I know as well, the, the port infrastructure is in, it's in need of some quick updates, in my opinion, uh, based on the little that I know about what I've seen. Yeah, it certainly does, Anthony. Now, we talked about the, the submersible quite a bit and the, auto the autonomous vehicle and what it's doing there. Talk about the technology behind that and the, and the new mapping, the integrated, vertically integrated mapping that you're producing from this. Yeah, so uh, most of the sensors themselves are just completely off the shelf. But everything that is built around these sensor systems, that's all us. Um, and so a couple things to mention on the sensors and the, the data types themselves. So we have a multi-beam echo sounder, and that gets you bathymetry, and it gets you uh, the seafloor condition. So kind of think of it like the hardness or the reflectivity of the sonar ping. We'll tell you, like, is it sand? Is it silt? Is it granite? Is it concrete? Um, things like that. Uh, and so the multi-beam is the traditional sort of it gives you the, the shape, right? It gives you the surface. 
Um, and then we have a side scan sonar, which is a sonar imaging uh, sensor. And that gives you, uh, think of it like a picture that you can overlay on top of that image. Um, oftentimes that allow you to see things that are a little bit more granular, maybe man-made objects, maybe protrusions, maybe logs, uh, maybe ships. Um, it, they all become much more clear when you have a side scan sonar involved. We also have a magnetometer and that'll tell you magnetic anomaly uh, measurements. So oftentimes if you need to know, you know, is this thing that I see metal or is it wood? It becomes very, very clear when you overlay magnetometer data on top of that. Um, also helps with things like understanding uh, metallic content of what may be in a certain area of the ocean. Um, it's used either for geophysical interpretation of the seafloor itself to know, hey, if I'm going to dredge, if I'm going to pull like uh, a dredge through this particular um, part of the ocean, like am I going to get things that are a little bit harder or have uh, particular geophysical geo properties that would make it hard to dredge. Um, so all of that sort of gets in there. And then uh, we're also doing sub-bottom profiling, which you can think of that as like, give me the couple first layers of the seafloor down to about mm -hmm. five to 10 meters, depending on what the seafloor sediment is in that particular location. What if it goes rogue, though, right? People always get concerned with autonomous. What if someone hacks it or it goes rogue? It, it runs into a dolphin. It hits a sailboat. It knocks me off my float while I'm enjoying the beach. <laughs> what, what, what's, the, yeah. what's the contingency plan here? Yeah, so there, I mean, there are so many contingency plans built into uh, what we've done. We've tried to take a bit of a different, much more, at least in our opinion, thoughtful approach on what contingencies look like. So every single comm system on that uh on that vehicle has redundancy. So redundant SATCOMs, redundant uh, radio, uh, redundant Wi-Fi. Um, we also have a separate beacon that if all other systems on the vehicle go totally haywire, this thing turns on and sort of like pings, um, pings the satellite networks and says like, hey, I'm in dire emergency mode. If it hits something, it's moving at two knots. It weighs 100 pounds. It's the equivalent of like you or I swimming into a dolphin. Like it might be bad, um, but it's it's like getting a nudge on the shoulder, very similar to a lot of other marine mammals. Like we, we think this is a significantly better way to do this mapping work as opposed to like a ship where you're worrying about strikes and there's all sorts of different things that can happen, sure. right? Because you've got a, a massive exposed propeller and this is an enormous object, maybe moving four to 10 knots. And it, this is nothing like that, right? So it, it, I think of it kind of like, imagine Shaq uh, swimming in the water. And like, that's the equivalent of what this would be like if it hit something. Um, and actually likely the other either animal or object would do more damage to our vehicle than we would do to that particular object or animal. And we think on a bunch of fronts, that just makes a hell of a lot more sense to be able to do this work at scale than the way that we're currently doing it now. So Anthony, what's next? Sharks with lasers? What, what's, what's next on the docket for, uh, for Bedrock? Yeah, I, I think one of the big things that uh, I'm particularly excited about is bringing Mosaic, which is our cloud platform, into the world. Um, and so while we are collecting data uh, ourselves, um, one of the big things that we realized was across the industry, whether you use us to collect data or not, um, there is a massive opportunity to try and help the entire Seafloor data community have a place to, one, publicly publish data, that they already have. So we actually have a, consider it like an open source repository for anyone that wants it. Um, you can make a free account of Mosaic and you can access any seafloor data uh, that's already in there for free. You can download as much of it as you want. And similarly, if you have seafloor data and you've been trying to get it into the public space, um, but haven't either gotten a lot of um, help or traction there, or it's been taking a long time, or uh, it's just a clunky process. Like we have a really nice modern uh, upload flow that gets that data into the public space. We think of this kind of like an open source seafloor map. And there's a bunch of things that we hope we can do with it over time, but the whole goal and, and as a public benefit corporation, this is sort of written into our charter. Our whole goal is to be able to make that available to everyone for free. So I'm very excited about that. And then even further into the future, um, I look a lot at uh, all of the, opportunities that we have about helping all of the different entities that currently use or move seafloor data around mm. and being able to help them do that much more quickly. Um, it, it, we're in this like very critical period of time, right? Where we need 
things to move faster. And we think this software system helps everyone in every part of the chain do that. And then I think... Yeah. No, Anthony, yes. super cool. Sorry, we're running out of time here. Uh, we really do appreciate you coming on, though, and giving us all these insights. It sounds like you're out up to some great stuff. Oh, yeah. Go check out Bedrock, right? Go check them yeah, out. Bedrock yeah, Ocean absolutely. Wait, Go thank check you once out. again, man. Take it easy. You know, when I was, uh, when I was a kid, we went to Disney. We spoke about Disney earlier. I went to Walt Disney World. We went to Epcot Center. And there, when okay. you go through this ride, there's like this future world ride. And one of them was like it was just showing people living under the ocean. Like they would oh, be yeah, living yeah, in residence. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. cried during that one when she yep. was seven. She was like, I don't want to live in the ocean. <laughs> Sorry, Jess. I don't mean to blow up your spot there, but it's true. Okay. Anyways, uh, Angie Prasad, CEO and co-founder of Leash Logistics is here with Peter PJ Benoit, who also is known as the big kahuna of sales over at Leaf Logistics. Gentlemen, thanks for coming on What the Truck. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Hey, how do you like that uh, ocean exploration thing? Would you, uh, I mean, those subs, if there was human size, would you jump inside one? Absolutely, man. If it keeps me from having to swim, I'm, I'm all for it. <laughs> well, like, hey, man, speaking of big kahunas, we got PJ here, but let's speak to the real big kahuna, the one who started the company. Why'd you start Leaf Logistics? Well, I mean, honestly, I've been working in the space for 17, 18 years and trying to help folks just manage this really, really tough job of finding capacity and finding demand and kind of tying things together a load at a time. And it's, it's just tough. I had a ton of respect for the people I work with and for. And I thought there would have been a chance to maybe look at the problem differently. Maybe we could make things easier to manage. Um, and, you know, this is an essential job. For a few months, everyone cared, right? Like truck driving was something that everyone paid a lot of attention to. We all um, talked about truck drivers as essential workers. But then we tend to have selective amnesia about trucking and how important it is to life, right, in, in, in our economy. Well, I just wanted to have a shot at making things better for both buying and selling Free. So, and you, and uh, how are you making that happen? You talk a lot about trust. You talk a lot about uh, you know building transparency, et cetera. So, what are you doing there at Leaf to to build that and and to get rid of this you know selective memory? Yeah, yeah. So, look, we we look at data as a, an essential foundation, right? So, we we've got data from over four hundred big shippers who've shared their data with us and trusted us to kind of look at that data for them. Um, and to try to look for optimization opportunities for each individual shipper, because obviously they care the most about their own supply chain, making stuff and getting it out to customers. But then what we do with this data foundation is we stitch it together at a network level and say, you know, there are trucks that are moving from A to B, there's trucks B to C, C back to A. If we can find those opportunities, the providers out there that are struggling to just kind of chase their tail off and can find repeatable work that keeps the truck loaded and the driver, you know, hauling cargo and getting paid. And that would make life better for all of us. Um, and certainly for the shipper and the provider. And so that's what we've done is kind of created a data foundation that looks at multi-shipper demand and stitches together three, four, five, you know, loads at a time over the course of a week and does it week after week after week so that both the buyer and the seller can get what they need to to kind of do for their business, they can get it easier and, and better. Now, PJ, you have to sell this man's vision, right? That's part of your job here. And one of the things that came up on LinkedIn when we were DMing each other was creating trust, which is not easy in an industry like this where the credo is DTA. Don't trust anybody because either way the market flips, somebody tends to get screwed. How do you create trust, PJ? Well, you know, that's one of the things that's been, uh, that I've been knocking my head against over the last 30 odd years. Um, no one trusts anybody. This whole industry is, well, I, I used to, used to call it a whole shell game, right? Shippers don't trust each other or shippers don't trust the carriers. Carriers don't trust, trust the shippers when they come into an RFP environment. Um, it's all about lots of promises and then very selective awarding. So one of the things that, uh, that really attracted me to Leaf and really attracted me to Anshu and, and his whole vision of everything that we're doing is we're, we're taking a, a much different approach and we're taking a much higher view of freight and those people or i'm sorry and the shippers within within these environments and looking at all their data looking at at all of their trends and and uh, historically what they're doing and how they're buying their freight and trying to help them get better shored up so that they can make better buying decisions moving forward so we build trust by working with them sitting on the same side of the table with them um, and and really being transparent about everything from our fees to exactly how we work and and how we come to uh come to be with them every day so pj uh, i i get it that you're on the same the same table with me right but how how is it that you're going to come in here and tell me how to run my business do you get that objection quite a bit 
<laughs> hey, you I, you know your object, I'm sorry, you know your business way better than I ever would. There you go. What we're doing is what we're doing is we're trying to give you a lot more uh you know, there's there's a lot of words to bandy around there, but uh a lot more visibility, a lot more vision into what you have at your fingertips. Everyone has a lot of data. Shippers have tons of data, but it's how you parse it and it's how you present it to then get a much clearer picture as to where you are now and then how you're going to buy in the future. And so mm -hmm. I'm not here to tell you what to do, but I'm here to help you support those decisions that you make so that together we can help plan you out in the future, save you money, reduce carbon emissions, the whole spiel. Now, Andrew, I've I've worked for a 4PL before and I've gotten some e insight into some of these RFPs that massive shippers put together and how inefficient they are and how many different partners they are and how some of the routing just makes absolutely no sense. And there's a lot of money lost. And now with carbon intelligence that you're seeing within TMSs and, and other tools like Sonar, um, and with what the board wants and your customer wants, it's becoming very important to actually care about these kind of things. Fortunately, net positives to both taking care of them. But how does Leaf enable their customers to make these more cohesive supply chains? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. And, and it's been hard to connect that sort of executive level objective, maybe even a target that's been set to having to go find the trucks and find that capacity on the ground. Um, so what we do is we we drop sort of empty miles and the ability to find efficiencies um, into the decision-making process and just make it one of the variables, right? So if you wanted to optimize for um, the lowest total miles as you put your shipment together with other people's shipments and kind of kept a truck hopefully busy for the you know three or four or five days that he or she wants to be out on the road as the driver, what is the, the best, most optimal way to do that? Taking carbon footprint as one of the variables that you can optimize against. And frankly, just shining a light on those opportunities, but sometimes being able to notch very precisely this game that you made uh, because you took empty miles out of the network uh, might actually have more value to you. It's something that the, the, the broader company is really aspiring to, to do and, and to talk to their customers about. Well, just be making that more precise and making that actionable can be really uh, pretty eye-opening. And so, um, you know, we've been focused on that. It's part, part of our sort of brand promise is to say, look, if we can wring out all of this waste that we do have, I mean, RFPs are certainly contributed to that. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, we've sort of hard-coded in ways that create inefficiencies into the way we operate. You just kind of look at the problem differently. There are there, there are efficiencies to be had just lying on the floor. We can pick them up and just go. Yeah. So uh, as you're talking about that and you talk about the the, the RFP process and, and it, what comes to my mind is, is shipper of, of choice, right? And you talk about the inefficiencies and the crazy RFPs that go there and the way they're routed. Is this something that can help a shipper actually become one of those shippers of choices where, where carriers uh, look at their routing guides or look at their RFPs and say, okay, this is really efficient, going to help me be able to use my equipment a lot more efficiently and help these people and lower my costs? You know, that's that's something that we're working really hard on because it's actually really important, right? I mean, you know, if you talk to a shipper, they can talk about all the carriers and they got them rank stacked about, you know, um, who does well and who accepts sort of what I send to them through the TMS and who doesn't. And, and they're measuring sort of the compliance of the carrier to this noisy data that they sort of stream to them on a very tra tactical basis. But what about the shipper? Right? Some facilities, and we all know this, like some facilities don't do as uh, good a job of loading the truck and getting the truck, truck turned as, as others do. Uh, some lanes are just inherently harder to, to handle. Um, and then there's, you know, the constant, I mean, there's just so many variables that the shipper is actually more directly responsible for that if they just did a better job of handling the freight, the carrier and the you know broker could do a much better job of serving the shipper, and so shipper of choice. Um, you know, look, I think there's a lot more data that we're starting to see, and we're sharing even with our shipper customers data that shows them where they're the biggest offenders, where they're actually committing those offensive fouls that are actually driving down service and driving up rates. And you know, it's it's actually really refreshing to see a lot of these big, sophisticated shippers using data that they haven't had before to say you know, we should do something about this. They actually, all ears, when they realize that certain facilities have a bigger cancellation rate, they actually care about fixing these things. They just haven't had the access to those data and ability to do something about it, um, you know, as much as they would have liked.
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know what we need? Like an elf, Santa's sleigh has like that chirometer and, and enough people oh, have to yeah. care about Christmas in order for it to fly. Like we kind of had that with the thank a trucker hashtag. Well, we need that on like a symbolic truck, just like that care about the industry of meter and then we'll all we'll, we'll, we'll fly up there. Well, PJ, <laughs> Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. We have to have you on again soon. The time goes so quick on the uh, greatest speed dating show in Freight Tub, but check out Leaf Logistics online and uh, find them on LinkedIn as well. If you go in the show notes, just click on their names and you can connect with them and get more information about what they do gentlemen thank you how oh, much great thank stuff, you guys take care all right man so yesterday was tuesday you know what that means oh t- uh inside the newsletter time to go inside the newsletter yeah. you've got mail sure do love that modem always Oh, such a lovely sound. It's sweet. I know. It's like one of those things like it couldn't wait for it to go away. Get off the internet. I'm trying to use the phone. Try to use the phone, Mom. (laughs) Caller ID. All right, everybody. Inside the newsletter. Newsletter. What's right? Newsletter comes out every Tuesday, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Usually every Tuesday. Freightwaves.com slash WTT to subscribe. Join uh, over 5,000 people now who are subscribed to that one. So thank you all who click subscribe on there. I'm one of them, my friends. Can't get enough. Well, (laughs) you're kind of obligated to be. Port of Austin. Although, you know, people like shine down on that stuff like if you're starting a new show or you're starting new content yeah don't like don't feel bad or get or, or insulted like some people are like oh the only people people who listen are your family or anything my favorite reviews okay. that i get to this day every single day or my dad watches every one of the truck and he texts me his like review of the segments and the guests and what he liked and what he didn't like that's awesome that's like my favorite thing and oh, it's absolutely. better than any review i could get from anybody else yeah absolutely. all right so there you go Port of Boston, go. right? Port of Boston, speaking of back home. So we were looking at that a little bit. So everybody's been talking about all these container ships at Anchor, right? Yeah. There's 43 yep. as of yesterday in Port of LA, Long Beach. They were sick of hearing about New York and Long Beach, though, a little bit, right? And actually, this <laughs> week, 23 container ships are scheduled to arrive. So we're already at 43. 23 are scheduled to arrive. To give you some context to that over the next three days, that's six more than normal. So we could easily get up to 45 and above as these days progress. But hey, yes. what about a port like Boston? Why not go over there? Well, that's what we looked at in the newsletter, right? There's a number of reasons why it's smaller. And let's take a couple pictures here of Boston. There's a couple of reasons. There's MSC. Well, one of the reasons is MSC. There's only two ships that call the port of Boston. Oh, is that right? That MSC ship is uh, one of them, right? Okay. I think you see some old Hanjin containers there, too. I think that was from a port tour when I was there in 2013. The second picture was from 2016. Yeah. I think we got a nice aerial one, too. But you can see Port of Boston, not a huge port, but there's been a number of issues with making it modern ready so you could actually bring these big vessels in. Because right now, it wasn't until the late 90s that I could even service like 5,000 to 7,000 TUs. Because of the infrastructure issues Yeah, there? because so Boston's built on a landfill, right? Yeah. So all that landfill, and what happens is when you when you put water in there, that, that sediment, that landfill, it just keeps pushing back in. So you oh, constantly, okay. it's like a beach. You know, if you dig a hole So they got to constantly be dredging it. Exactly. So they have to constantly dredge it out. You have some other things with the port itself just being kind of small, but they're getting these new gantry cranes. So you have the issue with having to dredge it. And there's a dredging project going on right now in the harbor. It's going to end yeah. in 2022. It's going to increase the size of boats that can come into 11,000 TUs. And those particular cranes that are getting installed this fall, they can lift up, and they're, they're specialized cranes, because Logan Airport is right across from the harbor. There's so, the low profiles. Yeah, you have to have the low profile. You can't have the stick-up ones, because like yeah. it's literally right over the water, Logan Airport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they got these big ones. They can lift up to 14,000 TUs off a ship. Will Boston become a premier terminal? Probably unlikely, but it'll become not at fourteen thousand TUs. I wouldn't imagine it's a pretty no, it, small ship anymore, isn't it? Well, so here's the problem. So realistically, with the dredging, probably more like a ten thousand to twelve thousand. But the problem okay. is when you're looking at all the vessels that are being made now, mm-hmm. a lot of them are fourteen thousand TUs and above. So uh, yeah. as Boston catches up, the world gets bigger. Um, for example, New York just had their biggest vessel call yet, and Asia was waiting for this to happen. They just had a fifteen thousand. TEU vessel arrive in New York when they did the bridge expansion over there. Oh, in which New York, yeah. is an unfortunate thing for Boston because as the bigger <laughs> vessels come, they're going to be less likely to go down yeah, to Boston. Yeah, but the Yankees stink still. Yeah. Well, maybe you could use more like feeder vessels or something. But Boston's a fun port to go over and do a, uh, a port tour. But, you know, yeah. Lauren Gleason from there also, who actually used to be with Hanjin, I know her pretty well, she talked about, she did an article with Bloomberg and she was talking about how, you know, we're not trying to be that Asian gateway that your Los Angeles is or... Right that uh, New York is, because they simply can't be. It's never going to be deep enough. The airport's in the way, but it can service maybe more than two calls. And it's lost since... So all all these ports, the narrative we keep hearing is there's so much volume, right? They're all congested. Sure. Boston's down 11,000 TEUs for the month of June this year versus 2019. 
That's interesting. Why I wonder why that would be. Because the bigger ones are getting fatter. More people are just sending their freight to Los Angeles. Yeah, they're like bringing it to the bigger, fatter ones. Yeah, and, and, well, and Boston's never going to be in the center of the country either, right? It's the not, other ones are a little bit easier once it gets inland, right? I mean, what's the infrastructure inland to service all the containers once they get off the ship? Dude, we got a ton of importers over there, though. We got yeah. uh, we got like 17 Amazon facilities. No, we got we got every sneaker company you can think of is there. Yeah, Converse, sure. New Balance, yeah. all of them. Everyone. I just named two. That's all of them. Every single <laughs> Every one. one of them. Oh, even those weird like, finger shoes are there. Here's a great story. This one was actually in CDL Life. So Heather Dowling, let's take, put this video up too. Heather Dowling, her daughter, she took to TikTok last oh, week. Oh, yeah. Look right at here. this. Is, this and, is... you know, her mom writes, she, she writes, poor baby, none of the truckers would honk for her as she was out there for an hour before she asked to just go. And she's, all these trucks going by. Who's that on there? Whose logo is that? that what one, are you doing? I saw that. I'm not going to read it that? Out. I'm not was... calling him out, but I know that one. I know that one. Yeah, I recognize that one too. So Poor these drivers, form, man. they Poor just form. they just dirt ball there. They just drove by like oh, I don't I don't see nothing. Well, yeah. you know what? The TikTok trucking community would not stand for this. No, <clears throat> no they would not. They were like, we got to make this right. Yeah. So the TikTok trucking community, they started making their own videos. They were doing virtual ones because they couldn't be there. And drivers started intentionally coming by her house to do the the yeah. toot horn. They're standing right next to her. They're giving her rides in the back of her truck. Air pumps forever is what her mom rides. All these drivers stop by. I love to see it. Yeah, that I is love to awesome. See it, man. Yeah, let the little girl have some fun, man. Way to go, guys. Good the cowbell form. for her. Making Good on the right. truckers, man. Good Absolutely, on the truckers. Man. Um, sort right. of a harrowing story. So we have our own personal story here of freight with someone who was impacted by COVID nineteen. Our mm, own Kim yes. Will. She just put up an op ed on freightways.com this morning, talking about her journey where she was not editing for us for a month. Michael Vincent. She. Um, I know. She's vaccinated. She got the Pfizer vaccine back in March and April, like many of us did. Her and her husband. They yeah. both got both both shots. She's yeah. over in Florida. She said she was, she, you know, she was at some sort of, uh, some, she was at some sort of meeting, right? She, what yep. was she at? A uh, run or something, some sort of zombie run. Um, she contracts. She got a breakthrough case of, of COVID. Uh, August 1st, she gets home and she, she gets that fatigue that everyone talks about. She yeah. says, you know, something is wrong immediately. She gets fatigued, gets laid down. When she wakes up, you know, covered in cold sweat, has yeah. to get the temperature. Um, and then the same thing happens that everyone says too. She calls the hospital. So we can't do anything about breakthroughs. You, you know, if, if you get worse, you get worse. You should be okay there. in a couple of days. Your husband got over it in three days. Here's the scary part, man. She didn't. Yeah. And the fever didn't go away. It did not break. She had to go into the ICU. She thought she would be out. She thought she'd be, she didn't. She went to the hospital first. She thought she'd be out. Um, her husband can't go in with her because of COVID protocols. Turns out she was stuck in there for two weeks, man. And couldn't see your husband because of that. See your husband. That's the scariest part, man. Uh, like all those things going through your mind. And, uh, you know, she asked her doctor, am I going to be okay? I don't think they put one of those horrific, like warm gloves in her hand or anything like that. But yeah. they said, I can't tell. And the doctor here was like, I can't tell you. The mortality rate with the Delta variant is very high. So not the most comforting thing. Right? <laughs> yeah, bedside manner. That doctor's not really well. Uh, Fortunately, she's back up, though. She's very vigilant, though, about, about people getting um, vaccine, having this taken care of. And, you know, she sent a personal thank you to Craig Fuller for F3 being postponed and turned into a virtual event because of all these breakthrough cases. And, you know, it's scary. I get messages from my kids' school all the time. Uh, hospitals in big trouble. So, yeah, I know some people have personal opinions. They don't always feel comfortable with it, but. You know, let's help each other out here. Yeah, um, I, I agree with you, man. Uh, don't be selfish. Let's help each other out. It is a society here, and this thing is Let's serious. take a look at this video. We got a video right here. Oh, yeah, this let's is take a look at this society. thing coming out. Let's play this. Telos means the highest purpose. It was a term coined by Aristotle. It's about individuals and society coming together to reach their fullest potential. The cities that have been built to date from scratch are more like real estate projects. They don't start with people at the center. Because if you started with people at the center, you immediately would think, okay, what's the mission and what are the values? The mission of Telosa is to create a more equitable and sustainable future. That's our North Star, and that'll never change. What we're trying to do is combine sort of the best of different cities in the world and bring it together. So if you think about Telosa being as vibrant and diverse as a New York City, combined with efficiency, safety, and cleanliness of a city like Tokyo, combined with the social services, the sustainability, and the governance model of a city like Stockholm. We are going to be the most open, the most fair, and the most inclusive city in the world. Okay, so well, it sounds great, man. I don't know what the vaccine vaccination rates will be within uh, that city I, there. Why but... don't you name it Stockio? 
<laughs> so WCRB TV. It says uh, the gentleman there is Lore, right? He's the guy who started yeah. Jet.com. He Jet.com was bit by bought bit. It was bought by a ton from Walmart. Uh, <laughs> he said he's going to retire. They asked him what he was going to do. Right? He said, "I'm going to start a reality show. I'm going to advise startups, and I'm going to build the city of the future." But he wants to do it with this city's called Tolosa. He wants to do it with your money. He needs four hundred billion dollars in funding, and he's going to put it in these potential locations. What do you think? If this was like a franchise team, Nevada, Utah, the deserts of Idaho, does Idaho have deserts, I guess, Arizona, uh, Texas, and the Appalachian Mountains? Um, yeah, I, I'm going to, Appalachian sounds good. Appalachia? <laughs> yeah, why not? A little culty, maybe? <laughs> I, maybe. I think this thing is, yeah, I'm not moving there anytime soon. It sounds like a place that Janet Reno would surround with tanks eventually. I mean, I like the infrastructure. We talk about infrastructure so much, building a city from scratch. <laughs> have you seen, like, some of the roadways that they have in, like, South Korea and stuff where, like, the light, you know, we can't oh, even yeah, keep yeah, lines yeah. And, and potholes off our roads. They have, like, like glow-in-the-dark glow lines in the dark and lines, which is like, covers. why wouldn't you, duh, from the beginning do that? Yeah, they don't build any of this stuff. <laughs> Like, that costs too much money. Wow. It looks like, cool. Look, they got, looks like they got flying cars in this place, too, and monorails it's and all kinds wild. of cool stuff. All right, we're running I out of time. It. Hit the music, my good man, Frazier. We'll bring you home. Find me on Twitter, at Timothy Dooner. Find him at Vincent the Dude. You can find the show wherever you get your podcast. Just look up What the Truck. You can watch us whenever you want uh, on the uh, FreightWaves TV app, tv.freightwaves.com. You can watch us live Mondays, Wednesdays, Fridays at noon Eastern time. That's all I got today. What do you got, Vincent? Hey, peace and love. Spread it everywhere.